Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Sans Pants Radio is so hot. Hey everyone, couple of things. First off, our Melbourne show this Friday is going to have a couple of guests. Andy and Al from Two in the Think Tank and friend of the show George DiMorelos are joining Jackson on stage for a very special live Jackson Bailey Spooks America. And then after a live Plumbing the Death Star, you'll be seeing Adam, Zoe and Cass for a big fat quiz of the night involving you, the audience. Just head on over to sanspantsradio.com slash live to grab your tickets today. On the topic of live shows, we're coming to RTX Sydney yet again, as well as performing an after-party show at Giant Dwarf that Saturday night. Once again, head to sanspantsradio.com slash live, and if you haven't grabbed your tickets for RTX Sydney, remember to use coupon code SANSPANTS at checkout for $5 off a weekend pass. That's rtxsydney.com, and use coupon code SANSPANTS. Welcome to another episode of Movie Maintenance, where some franchises just need rebooting. I'm Gabe. I'm Handsome Tom. I'm Carney. And today we're looking at The Omen. As in the, the series about men shaped like O's. The O it's men. It's like a shitty X Men, right? <laughs> Could you imagine? Not I reckon it exists. All. I reckon if we looked somewhere in like Bali, there would be a DVD for The Omen. <laughs> Well, I'll leave that to you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's funny you said it's like a shitty X Men. It's also like a shitty joke. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, so okay. I'm I'm a little bit curious coming into this because I've been kind of gently suggesting that these guys that Tom and Sean need to watch The Omen for the last couple of weeks since we started talking about doing this episode. By gently suggesting, it's yeah, been thanks, watch thanks the for fucking Omen. To watch a um, movie. The I thing is, I don't actually trust that you guys have seen it, and if you have, I don't trust that you've watched the correct one, which is <laughs> the first um, one. No, no, okay. I hand on heart, I tried to deceive Gabe by pretending that I'd watched the 2006 remake instead of the 1976 original and I got caught out pretty fucking quickly when I couldn't tell him the difference because he told you, you you introduced it by saying oh they're shot for shot the same but apparently there is a difference in the There's, opening yeah scene. the opening scene of the 2006 remake is yeah because what you said was like oh yeah no the 2006 remake's really good and I was like oh yeah how good was the opening scene and what do you think of the way in which it diverged from the original and I just and you're like, to oh, well, be like oh I didn't see the original and I was like well you would know because the content's very specific because the whole the whole thing is the 2006 remake opens Gabe, with would you like me to explain how that opens? oh I swear to god Carney, I will break how does the 06 one open Sean well it opens uh, in a church or something like that and there's a telescope and they're looking at the sky then there's a meeting with some some priest like oh, characters mother <laughs> And um, there's some imagery that grounds the film in the current sort of climate. So there was like 9-11 imagery and, and things like that. And of course, you couldn't have 9-11 imagery in a 76 film. 
Yeah. Well, there we go. That's the difference then, Gabe. Carney, are you honestly telling me that you watched the 2006 remake instead of the 76 original? Because I swear to God, I don't think I've ever been this angry at you. Look, Gabe, I don't, I don't go out of my way to hurt you. So I will say this. My favorite, one of my favorite kills ever in cinema, I've just witnessed it earlier when I watched this film, it is a man getting decapitated by a, like a pane of glass. It was definitely a pane of glass. Yep, it, it was wasn't a, glass. a sign. And with it, um, I'll tell you who the actor was. I'll tell you who the actor was. I'll tell you who it was. It was the guy from Titanic. It was Billy Zane's uh, bodyguard from Titanic. Great scene. I really love that. Are you sure, Sean? Because I am 90% sure the scene that you're talking about is David Sir Lewis <laughs> getting decapitated by a metal sign. Oh, you motherfuckers. There's a guy on the <laughs> roof who kicks a hammer and the sign does like a full 360 and then cuts his head off. <laughs> Who's watched which film? Why are you doing this? What have no, no, I ever I'll tell you done what, to you? Okay, no, I'll tell you. Okay, in yeah. all seriousness, yeah. Gregory Peck. Outstanding performance. Oh, I think Lee Schreiber is just <laughs> marvellous. <laughs> Mia Farrow does a really good, really good performance as well. <laughs> I've watched the 76 version. And, uh, I've, watched and I've, watched, the... I've watched the intro of the, of the 2006, but I've watched the 76 version. I don't know what to believe in um, And Gabe, I've only watched the 2006 oh, version. <laughs> As soon as you were like, what's the difference? I was like, I'm going to pretend I don't know what the difference is. So, um, okay, the reason for that is... I don't want to be on this podcast anymore. The reason for that is I could only find the remake on Netflix at short notice. So I watched the remake. The the plot is I I then looked up the plot of the 76 one and I'm like, it's exactly the same. It's the same screenplay. And it's shot for shot the same. The, The thing is, it's kind of like... Sorry, I'm... I'm legitimately trying to overcome a crushing sense of betrayal right now. But, from, from Tom, um, though, from, right? No, no, well, well, I mean... Because I watched it. Like, you, you, <laughs> might have, you might have done the right thing, but you made me feel like you hadn't, and that made me feel bad, and that made my soul die a bit, so I kind of feel like Can you're say, just if as you, liable if, if you're gonna, If you're going to force Sean and I to watch a horror film, we're watching it on our terms, <laughs> and that means I'm watching the inferior remake. <laughs> you so, missed out, because it's a good film. Oh, can I say, I did, I did actually, because I'd heard about the plate glass window killing, and when Sir Lewis got killed by the sign, I was like, oh. That sounds shit. So I went and I YouTubed the plate glass window killing, and I was like, no, nah, that's superior so, in every so fucking good. way. So out of curiosity then, um, Tom, what did you think of the 2006 one then, as a film, not having seen the original? Um, there, were, there were moments that I was still scared of. There were moments that, like, creeped me out. When was The Shining made? 76, I think. Yeah. Same as The Omen. Because they lean heavily into The Shining because there's that whole bit where he's on the fucking scooter. Oh, yeah. Well, that and was it zooms in, in on but, the wheel. But that's actually in the original Omen as oh, well. Oh, is it really? Exactly the same. Okay. Because um, the 2006 remake, the reason they remade The Omen in 2006 was so that the release date could be the 6th of June, 2006. Because wasn't it originally called The Omen 666 yeah, or something? that's yeah. literally uh, the reason they did it. Can I say... Good marketing strategy, boys. But the thing is, it made. I remember going to see it at the movies when it came out because I was sort of in love with this franchise at the time, and I was you really fall in love with a lot of. Franchises. I, I actually really do. It's kind of that like are bad for you. Yeah, <laughs> they disappoint you, and in not the even end. like especially good franchises either. No. Like, but anyway, the the biggest disappointment about it is that like it it kind of does the Gus Van Sant psycho thing where it's basically shot for shot identical to yeah. the original one. And the one thing that's different is that opening scene with the priest where they're talking about 9-11 and they're talking about, you know, um, the tsunami. Book, Book of Revelations is pretty all these world events. Yeah, yeah, finding ways to line up the Book of Revelations with all these current world events. So I was like, okay, that's kind of clever. That That's almost like, I guess, a reason for you to make 
to remake this film in this day and age. I kind of understand where you're coming from, but then you proceed to no, do nothing with that idea for the rest of the film. No, no. To just remake it and to remove the best element of the original, which was the soundtrack. Like the um. Oh, I didn't mind the soundtrack in there. Oh no no no! Nah, the, the one in the, in the original. Well, I wouldn't know. I didn't watch it. It's fucking good. <laughs> you know what I love, Gabe? That scene where the uh the, the first nanny looks at the dog. And just that music's like, wah, 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 wah. Oh, it just I love fucking it. gets under your skin. It's really but cool. But no, no, the, the bit, oh, fuck the bit, because I was watching The Omen last night, sort of in preparation for this, and the bit in the original that terrifies me so much still to this day is when um, Robert Thorne calls Kathy and it's like, you have to leave the hospital, you have to leave right now. And she's like trying to pull the shirt over and she can't yeah. see, and she pulls aside and then just zooms in on Billy Whitelaw's terrifying face. Yeah, she's Just fucked. staring at her. So and she's then, the, the nanny. The nanny the, yeah, yeah, what was her name again? Um, um, Mrs. I actually don't remember. Yeah, um, she's... Terrifying. I forgot her name and just started calling her Mia Farrow in my head. She's more terrifying. Yeah, Mrs. Baylor. Mrs. Baylor. She's more terrifying than the kid. Can I just say, having watched clips from the 76 just in case? Yeah. The kid in the remake is way scarier than the fucking kid in the original. Yeah, but I love He looks terrifying. I agree. However, the kid in the original, I like the fact that there's just that. I mean, you look at the kid in the remake, you're like, all right, that's Devil Spawn. Whereas the kid in the original could conceivably just be a nice child. Yeah. Anecdote about the casting, apparently when they cast the kid, because Damien barely has any lines in the film, he doesn't really yeah. do much. He's kind of just a cipher, which is what's effective about him because is he the Antichrist? Is he not? We don't really know. But Spoiler alert, he, he is. He is. Yeah, there's there's four more films that drive that home. And he's but, got a fucking thing on his head that yeah. says he is. <laughs> but apparently when they cast him, they brought in all these different kids and they asked kids to basically attack the producer and to kind of see who did it with the most savagery to kind of see who would play Damien. And basically all of them were just like yelling at him and calling him, you know, calling him names and stuff. This kid just walked in. They said, all right, have a go at the producer. And without a word, he just went over and kicked him in the balls. <laughs> and that's why they cast him. Oh, um, man. That's, that's how I got onto this podcast, actually. I just walked up and kicked Sam in the nuts and here I am. Sweet, sign him uh, up. So, so, yeah, like the Omen, the Omen franchise, I, I love the original. I still love it because even just like kind of skimming through it last night, I was like, it is actually a legitimately scary film where I think the creep, not maybe jump scary, but creepy, like really creepy. And I think a lot of that has to do with the music and the imagery. And I mean, I don't know, I'm not a religious person, but I think Catholic imagery will just always terrify me. It's not really jump scary at all. No, 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 no. It's just unsettling. The 06 one, jump scary? Yeah. That's fuck. Mm. I literally was watching it and there's a bit right towards the end where he goes back to check the, the birthmark, right? He goes back into the house and Baylock jumps and attacks him and like screams at him as he's yeah. poised over the body over, over the bay uh, the baby the boy the yeah, child yeah. the damien and it was one of those moments i literally went Wee! in my chair yeah yeah there's there's it's littered with jump scares what's well, the same moment and it's also got um because it does the same thing again bringing up the comparison of the gus van sant psycho remake yeah. I, i'd forgotten this until last night when i was trying to think back to the 2006 one which i haven't watched since 2006 but it adds well, all those moments game. of like Subliminal imagery and stuff, doesn't it? Yeah, Where yeah, it's like, like a, like, like a like Tyler, Durden, has, Tyler Durden type. Yeah, which the original didn't have. Shit. Like that's a cool, that's kind of a cool addition, I guess. But I mean, I, I think the remake is kind of an exercise in redundancy because you might as well watch the original. Like it's not even like it modernizes it, especially. Yeah, when I watched the no. when I watched the intro to the remake on um, YouTube, it had a director's commentary on it, and he basically said. If they hadn't done that bit at the start, you know, the thing that the only thing that's different about the whole film, he's like, then there, there was no point in making this yeah, film. Yeah. And it's like, well, there you go. Why'd you make the film? You make- <laughs> to make a 666 release. Hey, to, to be fair, though, it does have some cool actors in it. David Lewis is in it as the journalist guy. Yeah. And Michael Gambon, fucking Dumbledore, shows Who's up. Who's he play? One he's of the one of the He's Bugenhagen. Yeah, the oh, priest. Okay. The, yeah. yeah. So I should just listen to fucking Dumbledore. That'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, a, it's kind of got a funny fra- uh, history of this franchise because there's. 
I, I sort of see it as a trilogy. You know, it's the Omen, it's Damien, Omen 2, and the final conflict where Sam Neill plays a grown-up Damien trying to become president. I'm going to watch that. And it ends with the second coming of Jesus, and it's pretty crazy. But um, the second one's actually the best. Good crazy? Yeah, oh, yeah. Cool. Um, Damien, Omen 2 is by far the best because it sort of hits that awesome blend between being a trashy horror film where just crazy shit's happening, but also kind of having that haunting, unsettling, satanic undertone to it. Yeah. And that's like Damien as a teenager. He's at military school, and it's got this kind of weird satisfaction to it where Damien in this film has no idea. Because in the first film, you're like, how aware is he of what he is? In the second film, it's like, no, not at all. But no, then see, as the film see, goes in on- the, in, in the remake, he's very fucking Oh, yeah, absolutely. Whereas like in the second film, the whole time you're watching it, you're like, you realize, no, he actually doesn't know. And the second film is about him slowly realizing it, slowly coming to terms with it and being like, holy fuck, I'm the Antichrist. And then using his powers to fuck up bullies, using his powers to do all of these sort of bits and pieces until by the end of the film, he is basically ready to ascend. Yep. And then in the third film, you know, he's just terrifying Sam Neill being terrifying. And then there's a fourth film, a made-for-TV fourth film called The Foreman for The Awakening, hmm. where... It's essentially a remake of the first where a, a family adopts a girl and weird stuff starts happening and it's kind of beat for beat the same. But then because we can't let a girl be the Antichrist, it turns out that she's not the Antichrist, but she was born. Okay, this is a legitimate plot point that legitimately happens, but go. this franchise gets weirder. She <laughs> was born pregnant with her own brother who is really the Antichrist. And then halfway through the film, they transplanted the baby from her into her mother and then they kill her mother after she bears the real Antichrist, who is the new Damien. Gabe, how do you follow why along didn't, Why didn't you tell me okay. to watch that one instead? You know what? It gets weirder. The <laughs> how? Omen- so how does it wait, get weirder? Wait, 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 wait. Okay. Babies is, pregnant with brothers. Is, no, 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 no. Wait, this, this is amazing. Okay, so, <laughs> so in, in the third film, in the third film, there's a scene where Damien has- Sam Neill Damien. Sam Neill Damien is having sex with this woman, this journalist, who's like his lover in the film. And she's kind of, not the protagonist, but she kind of spends the whole film sort of trying to- you know, slowly realizing he's the Antichrist. And in the end, I think from memory, no, she kills him in the end. She stabs him with the dagger of Megiddo at the end of the film. And basically what happens with her, there's a scene where they have sex and he's kind of like in pain. He's like, oh, you know, I want to show you my world. I want to show you what I see in all of this. And she's like, show me, show me, Damien. And then he flips her over and has anal sex with her. Mm. And it's kind of like, oh, that's like the most satanic thing you can do. Anyway, um, <laughs> wait, wait, just wait, just wait. There, was, there were two <laughs> novels that were released after the third film. <laughs> Written by the person who I think wrote the novelizations of the films, Omen 4, Armageddon 2000, and Omen 5, The Abomination. In the opening scene of, um, of Omen 4, Armageddon 2000, Kate Reynolds, the journalist, I've read these books. Of course goes, you fucking just, have. Wait, just wait. Kate Reynolds goes to the doctors because she's, she's uh, having some stomach is- issues and she's in a lot of pain. And she proceeds to give rectal birth to Damien Thorne. Can oh. I say, can I say... No. That is a fucking thing that's happened. Wait, what? That, oh, my God, really? No, no, yeah, there, no, there are really. like weird medical cases where uh, fetuses have like the, the fetus has like no. moved Were to the Were they ass. the Antichrist? No, no, no. So there's, well, okay, my, my, my knowledge of this is going to be really <laughs> fucking weird when I explain it. So <clears throat> do you guys remember like the sealed section in like girls' magazines? <laughs> So we were really drunk at a mate's place and we opened up a whole bunch of these old magazines that she had. And yeah, then so someone. We're going to read some Dolly. Well, no, we decided to get drunk and do dramatic readings of Dolly, Dear Dolly Doctor. And one of them was an article about a girl who had given birth to a baby out her bum. Okay. Didn't show here, but just put on a lot of weight in her ass and got back pain. How? 
What I, the, the fuck? The, something happened and the feet has ended up in the wrong spot. Jesus Christ. I don't know if it's true or not, but I, I've heard of one actual reported case of it, which means that's enough for me. In, in Dolly Magazine, cool. So that's not as fucked up as pregnant with my brother. I, you know, uh, when you put it like that, yeah. Hang on, wait. So, so the butt sex that she has with Sam Neill gives her Sam Neill's as a young boy. Well, Wait, basically, what? yes. Um, so, so basically, she rebirths Damien in the fourth one, and then he essentially is brought up again as a teenager, and then he dies. Because, because I think the excuse they had was that in the first film, they say they have to stab him with all seven of the daggers yeah, of correct, yeah. that's and in the third film, he only gets stabbed with one of them. And they're like, oh, he's dead. And then, which I guess is a justifiable reason to bring him back. They're like, no, well, Damien can come back if he's only stabbed with one of them. So at the end of the... At the end of the fifth book, he gets stabbed by all seven, and then he dies finally, and he's a young Sam Neill bum baby. <laughs> Basically, yes. Do you know what? That's what the film should be called. Omen 5, Sam Neill bum baby of yeah, death. Yeah, sure. That'll sell a lot of copies. So is there... There's, the, there's no sequel to the remake, though. Is no, there? there isn't. There is a TV show that came out last year just called Damien. Yeah. Where does that fit in in the timeline? Um, it basically... Okay, it's really weird. It ignores... Omen 2 and 3, but it's it's set in the present day with um Bradley James as Damien and it's but it's packed full of flashbacks to the first film which in this continuity apparently happened in 1990 despite being very 70s. Oh. So there's like flash there's like family photos of him and Gregory Peck and all of this <laughs> stuff but like it's clearly set in 2016. So see the butt baby? No no th- he's he's this is this is just Damien okay. like the original Ca- Damien from the 76 film but yeah, baby's oh, not in the film. okay yeah yeah, yeah so the TV <laughs> show one's like oh there's a TV show about the butt baby okay <laughs> got to check that you know, one out <laughs> you know while we're talking about horror franchises uh, being canon and things like that is it uh, the omen kind of keeps rewriting itself and retro- retconning itself but still yeah. If it does go back, it seems to go back to the original. Yeah, which is what horror franchises generally do. With the exception of Child's Play, Chucky, they're all exist in the same world. Yes, they do. Which is fucking amazing. <laughs> I saw there's eight of them. They well, Jigsaw. Anyway, let's not get into that. But like the first three Omens, actually, that's one thing I will say for the Omen franchise is that the first three films are actually a very, very solid trilogy. Like they all continue off each other. They don't really contradict each other. They all they all have completely different casts, actors, everything. But totally, they're the same. They've all got Jerry Goldsmith's music, but he actually came up with new tracks for all of them. Cool. So each one has kind of like a really cool new variation. Did they, did they use any the of Jerry Goldsmith's music in the one I watched? No, not at all. Okay. Which is the most disappointing thing about it because the music's. I've got like, to show you the music after this episode. I feel it's so like good. While I did win in upsetting you. I think I lost a little bit of Fuck yeah, you did. <laughs> you lost it. You lost the pure atmosphere. Just, because it was just imp- I could not find the seventy six one legally. Look, yeah, I mean the thing is the seventy six one is a bit slow and it is a bit of its time, but they're both the same yeah, length. Yeah. They're both about an hour fifty, hour forty. Mm-hmm. The only thing I will say is that Liv Schreiber does an actually a, a pretty good job of yeah, being but Gregory Peck. Yeah. Yeah, look, that's fair. Yeah. Ray Donovan versus Atticus Fitch. David Lewis for Lewis is pretty good. No, but David Warner in the original is really good. (laughs) Yeah. All right. My Omen Child's scarier than your fucking Omen Child. Don't care. No, it's true. Because you've got shit music. (laughs) Do you know who else I've got? I've got Julia Stiles. And I'm like, you should have just stayed with Heath Ledger and you'd be fine. From Tenzin's Oh, I, yeah, I, I okay. had a yeah, yeah, That was good, a good joke, good, Tom. Good work, Tom. Uh, oh, Tom. Okay, so. Um, the Omen. I've had, a, I've had a run at sort of having a look at a way to maybe reboot this franchise that might work. Because the remake kind of really fucked up because of pulling that same mistake as the Gus Van Sant Psycho with, you know, maybe one or two interesting new ideas. 
but it was otherwise really redundant. And the TV show, the big mistake the TV show made, apart from being fucking awful, is that it tried to turn Damien into a hero. It tried to make him like this sort of tragic, heroic, sexy figure. And it just didn't work. Because the thing about Damien Thorne is that he's not actually really a character. I mean, in the original film, he's just this almost silent five-year-old, and the terror comes from what he could be and from that potential. In two and three, there isn't really much of a sense of character for him or of him even being the same guy, apart from, you know, like, I mean, two's got the kind of interesting exploration of him grappling with his fate, which kind of gives him this nice parallel to growing to young Jesus. Is he still the president's kid? No, they kind of brush that under the carpet a bit. Like, he's with his senator uncle now. Wait, wait, because I will say that that the end of The Omen is fucking chilling. When he's with the president, yeah. Yeah. He's he and, wins, do, and he's the most that. powerful man in the world, which makes me think: if you made the omen now, imagine if Donald Trump was just given a, the, the Antichrist. <laughs> You'd be like, "Oh yeah, you you could do this. You'd be the best Antichrist ever. <laughs> We're the greatest team. We're the best Satanists ever." All right, Tom. You won't be challenging Alec Baldwin's position anytime soon. No, I wasn't going to. <laughs> okay, so you so like, Damien. In these films, he's literally evil incarnate. He's just a pure force of evil in the form of a man who exists purely to destroy the world. So what I kind of thought is that what a new Omen film should do is not try to retrace the steps of the old ones or be revisionist to make him a hero, but to come at the whole idea of the Antichrist as this terrifying figure of evil from a new angle. Basically, how do you make Damien Thorne scary again? Give him a fucking bowl cut. It's I. He's a terrifying child to look at. <laughs> if I was... His parents, I'd just be like, have him back. <laughs> how do they impregnate the? How do they impregnate the, the jackal? By the way, sorry, the the wolf dog jackal thing that he's born out of. Yeah, how the fuck did they do that? I don't know. Okay, can you address that in this pitch, mate? I do not. Sorry. Oh. Okay, so I'm going to launch into it. I'm not going to tell you much about it. I've, I've, this actually, this film actually had a really a really strange influence, which I will admit afterwards. But I'll see if you guys can pick it up because. I had a very particular influence in this film, which I saw and I was like, about halfway through watching that film, I was like, you know what? The Omen. So anyway, we open on the sweeping I'm sands. I'm start guessing film. I'm kidding. Oh, please don't. We open on the sweeping sands of Jerusalem. It's late afternoon and we're moving towards this huge, twisting, towering hill of rock and sand. In the background, the music that's playing is the main title from Damien Omen 2, which is like this ominous war march variation of the main Omen theme song. And as the music kind of picks up and escalates, we move closer and closer to the hill until we see these two men wrapped in cloth making their way up it. And the hill's all steep, it's sandy, it's rocky, but they keep going until they reach this tiny mouth of a cave. One of them sort of looks at the other and nods. Whatever they're looking for, they found it. So they get their torches out, and they head into this narrow gap. And the walls are all covered in ancient writings, and the further they get, they realise the cave kind of slopes down. And as it does, it widens out. Deeper and deeper they go, step by step, until slowly they enter this vast chamber, almost completely untouched. It's all paved, it's covered in massive biblical paintings, and you can imagine, like, maybe it's snakes and dragons and all kinds of things intertwined with text, all leading up to this enormous fresco image on the other side. And the two men stare up at it, and for a moment they're just in awe of what they see. And then one of them just says, we need to go now. The other one fumbles quickly. He gets his camera out. He raises it. He takes a couple of shots. They need evidence of this. The man who's not taking the photos is clearly nervous. He's looking around. He's getting more worried by the second. Whatever they've seen has terrified them. And he urges the photographer to hurry up. They turn and standing in the mouth of the passage they came through is a gigantic black dog. Oh, fuck. I thought it was going to be a small child and that was going to scare the shit out of me. The two men don't move. The dog stares at them 
and then slowly just turns and walks away. (laughs) Men look at each other, and they go to run, and as they do, with a thunderous crack, the cave collapses in on them. So we cut to a lecture hall, and standing on stage is a young man, this kind of well-dressed, good-looking young man. He's in the middle of a lecture. Behind him are several slides depicting statues and photos of biblical text. This is Peter, our protagonist. And as we slowly learn over the course of his talk, he is a former archaeologist. He's young, but we get a sense as he talks that there just isn't much passion to him anymore. He's quite dry as he talks about various discoveries and this and that. And we see sort of a few students yawning, doodling on their books. Everyone's kind of tuned out. That night, Peter has dinner with his girlfriend, Linda, and she's kind of excitedly talking about the fact they're going to move in together soon. But Peter's barely aware of it. He's drawn, he's distracted. And when they get home later, we find out why, because a quick look over his bank statements reveals Peter is heavily, heavily in debt. Nice. So bit by bit, we learn that Peter was this hotshot young archaeologist. He was going to the most remote locations to find the rarest artifacts. He was basically Indiana Jones. But the thing is, so many of those dig sites are in really dangerous parts of the world, parts torn up by war and conflict. And Peter's seen some stuff. And furthermore, his last dig ended in an accident involving dynamite trying to clear a dig site that resulted in a head wound that's left his memories somewhat scattered and his memories of the past kind of hazy. He's all right, but we kind of see in the lectures, there are moments where his train of thought just escapes him or he kind of falters mid-speech. And that just kind of makes him angry and frustrated himself. Because in all, he's conflicted. He left the scene because it was dangerous. He wanted to spend more time with Linda, devote himself to this. But not only does he kind of find the lecturing circuit singularly uninspiring, it's not bringing in any money. And really, when all is said and done, he's an archaeologist. He wants to be back out on the dig. Is he played by Anthony Starr? He's probably a bit younger than that. Daniel Radcliffe. Actually, yeah, that's a really, really good Boom. call. Yeah. So you think- went way younger. <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, yeah. I, I, I sort of went for the- I went, uh, He's probably about then, 30. Oh, right, cool. so Let's say he's cool. about 30. Yeah. So he is young. He's a hot shot. He's very impressive for his age. So one day at campus, Peter's approached by this middle-aged man in a suit who offers to buy him lunch. Actually, not Radcliffe. Slight, if you want him slightly older, you go somewhere like Andrew Garfield. Uh, no, because I've got a better character of Andrew Garfield. Okay, cool. Done. Yeah. <laughs> So, approached by a middle-aged man in a suit who offers to buy him lunch. Peter agrees and they talk. The man's Italian and he reveals that he actually works for the Vatican. Peter's kind of a bit bemused by this, but the man goes on to explain that recently in Jerusalem, a major discovery has been made, or at least what they think is a major discovery. Peter tells the man he's not interested, but the man slides him a photo. Hidden under rubble is a broken corner from, and Peter just says, the Megiddo fresco. The Vatican man's impressed, so Peter does know his stuff. Peter says, are you sure? I mean... The markings seem to suggest it is based on rumour and conjecture, but it doesn't exist. It's a myth, right? Well, that's what we need to find out, the Vatican man says. The Megiddo fresco was long thought to not exist. It's this massive mythical fresco said to have been created at the same time of the Book of Revelation that is supposed to reveal the details of how the end times will happen. For the Catholic Church, it's a hugely important document. For the archaeologist leading the dig, it's a career definer. Bit of money in it too, eh? And Peter just kind of says, why me? And the Vatican man says, because it's dangerous. We need somebody who's going to keep a level head in the middle of a hotly contested discovery that everybody wants a part of. And Peter's resume is extremely impressive for his age. And besides, they're going to pay a lot. Yep. Yeah. Peter's still conflicted. He talks to Linda, but she points out it's pretty clear his mind is made up. The dig will put him back where he wants to be. It'll let him be a part of a gigantic discovery and will solve his financial problems. She is scared for him, but what kind of girlfriend would she be if she stood in the way of him chasing a dream? And so with Linda's blessing, Peter flies to Jerusalem. And we watch him on the plane. It's kind of obvious that for all his doubts, he just can't wait to get in there. 
And oh, it's going to fuck him up so bad if oh, he's excited. <laughs> so upon arrival, he's met by a couple of other Americans. Sarah, who's a young sort of driven journalist covering the dig. And Rob, who's this kind of excitable young PhD student who can be Andrew Garfield, who's kind of weedy, jittery, excitable, and was kind of lucky enough to secure a place in the dig, and he just can't wait to get in there. So oh, good. he's kind of a bit of a goofy, bumbling dickhead. Can kind of be our comic relief, maybe. And so together they're taken by Jeep out to location from the opening scene, the huge hill, at the foot of which is already a sea of tents. This is a huge dig. Yep. This is like one of the biggest archaeological digs in history to find this. So Peter inspects the site and he slowly finds out what happens. The enormous fresco was in the cavernous centre of the mountain, but a collapse has broken it up and made it nearly impossible to get to. In order to avoid further damage, they will have to be very careful, taking their time to work through all the rubble to find the piece of the fresco, try to reconstruct it, and find out if it really is what the Vatican thinks it is. And so Peter sets about instructing the diggers, and we see that he's kind of an artist back at work. Hmm. The way he says, all right, you focus on this part. Okay, now you gently clean here with brushes. All right, now you're going to use a chisel to chip away at this. He knows exactly what he's doing. This comes so naturally to him. He is completely in his element. So the first night, Peter has a beer around a campfire with Sarah and Rob. And as they you get kind of a bit of a you know, Jaws drunken bonding scene. Yep. They have a few drinks and they kind of have a chat and they talk about almost a bit like that scene in Everest where they talk around, sit around talking about why they want to do it. Yeah. But yep. So it's backstory stuff that. for the characters. Yeah, backstory yeah. stuff yeah. for the we characters. We learn about them, we learn about previous yeah, digs, um, why they came here. Yep. And they sort of talk about them. We learn that not, none of them are especially religious, but they all understand the significance of this discovery. Sarah kind of says to Peter, you know, what draws you to this stuff? And Peter says he's always felt that to understand our place in the world, we have to know where we come from. He kind of dreams of a world where all of history is documented, where humans can have a full and complete understanding of everything that makes up their pasts. And Rob, who's like a bit of a lightweight and clearly a bit drunk, he kind of laughs at this because he likes the thought. But he says, you know, the truth is he kind of just loves the mystery of it. Like the whole Indiana Jones adventuring yeah. archaeology thing. That's kind of why he's here. He just loves loves this stuff. You know, he's, I love I love digging. That's good. He just loves he loves his digging and he loves finding artifacts and he loves all these bits and bobs. And he's just uh, kind of like a bit of a he's he's kind of the same age as them, but he's sort of a bit of a kind of giddy child. Is yeah. someone like just to help fill a picture in my head, like Claire Foy, good for the journalist? yeah yeah. Oh, she'd great. be great. She'd be great. Like kind of switched on, driven, a bit yep. witty, a bit droll, a bit dry. But basically, through this scene, we kind of get to know the characters. They get to know each other, and they all kind of like each other. And, like, Rob's kind of just obsessed with, like, stumbling on things we can't quite explain. He, he almost is like, I want to retain the mystery. I want to know, Ooh, does it does it sort of reveal the apocalypse? Does it not? I don't know. And Sarah, for her part, she kind of thinks if this really is a guide to how the apocalypse is going to play out, then fucking hell, she wants to be the journalist who breaks the story. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that she doesn't find the whole thing completely exciting and fascinating. Basically, they're all united by this shared fascination with what this fresco might represent. Death. So next day, one of the Israeli diggers approaches Peter with an idea. He's found a second tunnel to the side of the mountain, and he reckons a small amount of dynamite placed in the right spot will dislodge some of the rubble and give them a clearer way to the bulk of the fresco. And Peter just flatly refuses. He won't risk damaging it. But the diggers persistent, and Peter just like, is, he gets angry. He gets really angry. No, no dynamite. And the diggers kind of offended and fuming. So that night, the digger sets out through the camp with one stick of dynamite. Because he's sure of himself... As he explained to Peter, he's done the calculations. He knows he can make this work. You can't. And <laughs> as he's walking through the windy desert night through the camp, he stops. He feels like he's being watched, maybe. He turns and perched on one of the tents is a crow. And he's kind of got his eye on the crow and he's a bit distracted by it. And he kind of keeps walking, not noticing a low-slung rope between two of the tents, not noticing the campfire slightly beyond with a few diggers carrying around, <gasps> not noticing until he trips and the dynamite he'd planned to be though so very careful with oh, goes flying through the air oh. and lands in the campfire. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, shit. 
So the camp is in total disarray. Several people have died and the diggers called off for the day as they try to work out what to do. This is terrible press for them. But a lot of money has been invested into this dig and Peter's getting terrified phone calls from Linda to which he's acting calm. It's all fine. It's all okay. It's going to be fine. It was just an accident. But it's pretty obvious that he's shaken because dynamite was the cause of the accident he had. And dealing with this is really fucking with him. But no, he needs the money. He needs to stay. He needs to be a part of this. So eventually the decision is made, which we knew it would be, the dig has to continue because otherwise these deaths are for nothing. And Peter, he does consider leaving because Linda does ask him to, but no, his need to be a part of it wins out and so they go on. But something's changed, not just the mood in the camp, which is now somber and shaken, but it quickly becomes clear that what just happened is only the start. A few days later, another digger slips, falls and buries a pickaxe in his skull. Another accidentally hangs herself when she slips down a crevasse in the mountain, having absentmindedly slung a rope around her shoulders that gets caught and snagged on a rock up ahead. The closer they get to uncovering whatever is on this fresco, the more people die. And there's that conspicuous plate glass truck just sitting in the corner of the dig site. <laughs> Tom's starting to get Chekhov's truck. Everyone just gives it a wide berth. I'm starting to get cold and scared. Yep. I know where I'd be. Not at the, I wouldn't have gone. <laughs> so... As it continues, Sarah's interest in the dig is kind of curdling. Rob's still trying to kind of be funny and make quips and be enthusiastic, but, like, he's probably never seen this kind of death before, and it's really shaking him up. Sarah kind of starts to wonder if maybe the story here isn't about the dig. Maybe the story is about the fact that the Vatican didn't take the care they needed to to make sure that these diggers were protected. And again, this kind of puts her at odds with Rob, who's trying to remain optimistic. This puts her at odds with Peter, who's just kind of trying to, like, get this over and done with. He's just putting his head down. He's trying to get the job done, despite the fact that he's starting to notice... This dark hooded figure watching him at a distance around the camp, wherever he turns. A figure that nobody else seems to see. And Peter started to wonder, like, in the heat and the stress, is his mind playing tricks on him again? Because he's at a point where he doesn't know if he can ever really quite trust what's going on in his head. It's not in your head, Peter. (laughs) One afternoon, after another digger is killed in an accident, Peter just calls off the dig for the day. He's like, we, we can't do this. We can't do this. He's stressed. He's scared. He's run down. He's tired, probably dehydrated. And so he goes to his tent and he just kind of puts on his satellite TV. He's just planning to focus on this, not think about what's happening, turn his brain off. But he keeps hearing sounds from outside, maybe strange whistles, rustles. And it always kind of builds up. Peter's like, is it just my head? I don't know. Finally, he's like, I have to go out and look. And so he kind of walks out and you can imagine like the expanse of the camp the huge starry sky, the distant shape of that twisting mountain behind it. And Peter's kind of standing there in this like almost apocalyptic landscape, looking around, nobody here. He pauses, he turns walk back into his tent, and as he does, out of the corner of his eye, he sees that hooded figure just running towards him. Just running. Peter like screams and falls back, and the figure just swipes at him with a knife. And they kind of grapple. And they're fighting and Peter starts to panic. And as he does, memories are flashing through his head. The dynamite hitting his head, falling down the rocks. This, 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 this. He can't, he freezes up. He doesn't know how to act. And then a gunshot in the night and the hooded figure goes down. Are you? Standing behind them, (laughs) smoking gun in hand, is a man dressed in black. A grizzled middle-aged man, let's say Willem Dafoe, who helps a trembling Peter to his feet as more men come out of the shadows and slowly pick up the body and carry it away. This man's name is Father Larkin, sent by the Vatican to make sure everything's going to plan. <laughs> he's essentially special ops from the Vatican. Okay. I like because it. Because he he's found out that something's wrong here, so he's been sent in to make sure that things go smoothly. That's what he does when he's not acting. Protects the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Peter's kind of horrified. He's watching that body be carried away. He's like, who, who was that man? What the fuck is going on? His father Larkin says, let's take a walk. Let's have a chat. Father Larkin leads him out of the camp. And here Larkin tells him, not everybody wants this fresco to be uncovered. There are even factions in the Vatican who want it to remain hidden, who want to turn a blind eye to what it might depict. Peter's incredulous. It's a, it's a goddamn artifact. It'll be interesting, and I'm sure it'll be important from a Christian perspective. But outside of that, there's no reason to put any stock in it, is there? Larkin sighs and closes his eyes. No, he says that's not exactly true. The few photographs we've seen of the fresco have given an indication of what it might say, and it's troubling. We're only getting snippets based on the fragments we found, but descriptions line up eerily with recent world events. Certain conflicts and natural disasters that this fresco seems to have foretold. Just uh, ripping off the good omen there. With oh, that go fuck point. yourself, mate. <laughs> no, actually um, using it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and so, so couple this with certain interpretations of the book of Revelations and, and what, Peter says, angry now. What, you expect me to believe the apocalypse is coming? What, that the Antichrist is on the way? Larkin kind of looks in for a long time and says, have you ever heard the name Damien Thorne? <laughs> Peter asks him what the hell he's talking about, but Larkin ignores him. See, Damien Thorne, he says, was the adopted son of Ambassador Robert Thorne, who, wait, hang on, Peter says, that's the one who went crazy, right? That happened when I was a kid. And Larkin grimaces, yeah, tried to stab his son, shot down before he could. The thing is, I'm inclined to believe he wasn't crazy at all. And Peter's kind of a bit pissed off now and kind of still terrified, a bit shaken. He's like, what, what the hell has this got to do with anything? Everything, Larkin says. You see, Robert Thorne believed his son was the Antichrist. Now, Peter would laugh at this, but he's still too shaken up. And so he just listens as Larkin tells him the story of Damien Thorne, born in Rome with the 666 birthmark on his head, raised by the Thorne family, around whom people kept dying until eventually the Thorns themselves perished when they seemed to stumble on the truth. Damien then went on to grow up with his uncle, who also perished when he started to believe the boy he raised might be more than just a normal kid. So where is Damien Thorne now, Peter says. Well, that's the thing, Larkin replies. We don't know. Oh, boy. We were keeping a close eye on him until he left school, and then he vanished. That was years ago. When Damien was operating publicly, it was very easy to chart his movements. But his disappearance means that we don't know where he is or what he might be planning. Good job, dickheads. You lost the Antichrist. (laughs) (laughs) And that, Larkin explains, is why the fresco is so important. Because anything at all that can give them any indication of where to look will help. And furthermore, the fresco is believed to, at the center of it, depict the face of the Antichrist. Oh, okay. (laughs) But these are myths, Peter says. Are they? Larkin replies. Someone tried to kill you tonight because of those myths. You ever heard of the disciples of the watch? People who believe the Antichrist is here and it's their job to protect him. And what about all the deaths here? Freak accidents slowing you down? I'm not asking you to believe me immediately, but time is of the essence. We need to know what is on that fresco. If we can show the face of Damien Thorne to the world, we will be prepared. Peter stares at him and then just turns and walks away. And that night he doesn't sleep. The next morning over breakfast, he approaches Sarah and asks her in her work, has she ever heard of the Thorne family? Sarah says, oh yeah, the two brothers, Robert and Richard, and their wives, all dead. And, and the kid, uh, D- Damien, who everybody was like, oh, he's destined for great things, but he just disappeared. And Peter, still kind of feeling a bit stupid, asks her if she's ever heard of the rumors surrounding Damien. Sarah laughs, oh, what, the Antichrist stuff? Sure, she did a piece on cults a few years back, and Damien Thorne's name came up in a lot of circles. 
never thought much of it, just whack job conspiracy theory stuff. Although it's kind of weird that we were never able to track down any photos of him. Like all of his school photos and official pictures of his family all just vanished. Peter's really disturbed. <laughs> he can't stop thinking about what this could mean. And while he is skeptical by nature, people have died in freak circumstances. But his priority here has to be the digs. He tries to shake it off and he recommits. They get a little bit closer and then by that night, two more are dead. One digger just pulls out a gun no one knew he had and shoots himself. <laughs> Another refuses to move when part of the tunnel collapses. She just stands there and watches and smiles as the rocks bury her. Oh, that's upsetting. Um, <clears throat> and alone in his tent that night, unable to sleep, Peter is visited by Father Larkin. For a moment, the two of them just look at each other and Peter says, You knew. You knew what would happen if we came here. If we keep digging, we're all dead. Not necessarily, Larkin replies. Assassins in the shadows, freak accidents, Peter says. If we stay the course, we're done. It's as simple as that. And if we don't, Larkin says, what, you think your life is worth letting the Antichrist have free reign? Any of our lives? What, we should just close our eyes and let ourselves get dragged down like lambs to the slaughter. Essentially bow down to the Antichrist. Oh yeah, Damien Thorne, Peter says, sure. He's vanished, what's to say he isn't dead? I don't think he's dead, Larkin says. Thing is, in the past, when all of these incidents happened, the freak deaths and everything, it was always people close to him. Damien Thorne is a magnet for death and destruction. He's like the eye of the storm around which it all happens, which leads me to believe that Damien Thorne is here in this camp. (laughs) (sighs) What, you think he's trying to sabotage us, Peter says. Fuck. (laughs) Maybe, Larkin replies. But the honest to God truth is, I wonder if he even knows himself who he is. Oh. I mean, when Damien was in the public eye, he had a target on his head. The safest way to protect himself would be to forget. It's very hard to expose someone who doesn't even know they have any secrets. Ah, Fucking Sean. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I reckon. Peter tries to be incredulous, but something about Larkin's words sticks with him. Later that night, he goes for a walk, and as he does, he reaches up and touches his head. The memories from before his accident have always been vague and uncertain. Could it be possible? No, of course not. He knows who he is, right? But then... Then he saw the look on the face of the digger who died in the collapse. Sheer ecstasy. Whatever is happening here, it's addling minds and twisting reality. And the only way to stop it for good is to get to the heart of the fresco and reveal that face. Then, if all of this is just bullshit, at least they'll know for sure. So, the days go on and Peter starts driving them harder and harder. Finally, he just permits the use of dynamite. Something <laughs> Rob and Sarah question, but Peter's past the point of worrying about keeping that damned fresco intact. He just wants to get to the face. He needs to know the truth now. In the wake of all of these deaths, the diggers are getting reluctant and they're getting scared. Peter just pushes them regardless. And people keep dying. But Peter just ignores it. Nothing matters now except for getting to the heart of that fresco and finding the truth. Bit by bit, more bits of the fresco get exposed. Father Larkin's team sets about translating them, and the deeper they get, the more disturbing it all is. The fresco speaks of a figure born into forgotten wealth, a figure who hides among the dirt until the time has come to rise under the shadow of a face that is not his own. And if Larkin isn't drawing the connections, then Peter certainly is, and it makes him more hell-bent. And the worse he gets, the more scared the rest of the camp start to get of him. Fearing his desperation to get to the heart of this, whispers start to grow. Why is this fresco so important to him? And slowly, rumors start to spread of what it might say. And with all these deaths, questions are being asked about what they have found themselves in the middle of. And soon the word Antichrist starts getting whispered. 
Diggers start to leave in the night. The already depleted camp is losing men and money is running out and still Peter just digs. Finally, they're getting close to the center where the face is said to be. By this point, there are only a handful left in the camp. Rob, Sarah, both thin and tired and ready to go home. Peter, Father Larkin, his men and a few diggers. And finally, one of the diggers comes privately to Peter and says he thinks he's found a way directly to the center of the fresco through a side passage that they've excavated. He passes on the map to this area and Peter kind of is just ready to get in there straight away when a call comes through on his satellite phone. Their funding's been pulled. The dig's over. The Vatican just can't afford any more bad press. Peter is furious and he goes to confront Father Larkin. The priest is packing his things. And when Peter pulls him up, Father Larkin just says, there's nothing we can do. But Peter retorts, there's a way. There's a way in there to see the face. There's a way that we can get in there, get to the truth of it, and see who this person is. And Father Larkin just looks at him and says, and why do you need to see it? Oh. You already know what's going to be there. Oh. And Peter gapes at him, what are, you, what are you talking about? You know what I'm talking about. Those hazy memories, that constant fascination with Christian artifacts. Everyone, after all, is drawn to the way their own story is told. Peter backs away. No, he says, no, I'm... Why fight it, Peter? Larkin says, you can go into that cave. You can find the answer for yourself, but we both know what it will be. And the question will be the same, the one I'm posing to you now. What will you do next? And Larkin begins to say, from the eternal sea he rises... (laughs) creating armies on either shore, turning man against his brother until man exists no more. (laughs) Father Larkin smiles and Peter just cracks. The heat, the exhaustion, the trauma, the fear and the doubt. Enough is enough. He just lunges at the priest, shoving him hard. They fight. Larkin falls back. And as he does, he strikes his head on the corner of a heavy metal box. Peter stares at him. He's shaken. He's terrified. He looks at Larkin's blank face and then he just turns and runs. People are calling out to him from all directions. He just ignores them. He ignores the eyes of them. He ignores Rob and Sarah asking what the hell is wrong. He ignores them. And as he runs for the mountain, he just climbs. Climbs until he finds the cave. Goes until he finds the turnoff that he was told about. Through rubble and wreckage, he moves until he sees, ahead in the shadows, a huge slab of stone. He slowly approaches it. In the dark, he can see the shadowy outline of a face. We can hear his beating heart. His heavy breathing. As he gets closer, as he fumbles with his torch... And the light falls on it to reveal nothing. There's a dark hole where the face should be. (laughs) A hole that looks like one made by a bullet, from which protrude cracks spreading in all directions. The face of the beast is gone. (laughs) And Peter just screams. In rage and frustration and guilt, he screams as he just runs back the way he came, stumbling and falling as he does. Outside, a blood-red sunset is coming over the camp. He staggers out of the hill, standing on the side of the mountain, and down towards his tent, just running and running until he pulls himself into the tent, falls to his knees, trying to breathe, trying to think, and then he hears something. His little satellite TV is on. He looks over at it, a bit confused. It's the news. And the new ambassador has finally taken his position. However, he has courted surprise and controversy with the appointment of young Damien Thorne as his chief of staff. Peter kind of stares at it. The newsreader's still talking. Damien Thorne, for those who don't know, is the son of former ambassador Robert Thorne, who has been a recluse for years, but recently said that the time has come to return to public life and help continue his father's work. Damien is currently abroad, but said he was looking forward to getting started. Footage plays on the screen. Old footage of a young man in what looks to be this shanty town in the Middle East, crouching down, helping out a small child. 
He looks up at the camera, smiles broadly, and as we see him, no. the omen theme starts to play. It's Rob. Fuck! I'm <laughs> <laughs> Peter stands. Words are racing through his head. Words and events hiding among the dirt in the shadow of a face that is not his own. And then Larkin. Larkin's suggestions. Suggestions that terrified Peter and made him act more and more erratically, all in service of Larkin's true master. And as we see this, we cut to Sarah entering the priest's tent and finding his body. We see a shout go up over the camp. Then we cut to the inside of the cave and we see the face of the beast on the fresco. Rob's face, and then we see Rob standing there, watching with a smile as he raises a gun and destroys the evidence. (laughs) And then the whispers, all throughout the camp, all the whispers, Antichrist, Antichrist, Antichrist. Peter staggers out of the tent into the last of the dying light. Some of Larkin's team see him and yell out, and Peter runs. All around the camp, we see phone calls being made, people whispering to each other, and that music picks up as Peter just runs, runs and runs, and keeps running out into the endless expanse of the desert sands. Far above it all, on top of the mountain, Damien Thorne, unmasked, looks down at the man he has framed, the man he directed all the attention to, and he just smiles. (laughs) Framed against the blood-red sun, he is now little more than a silhouette. And far below, a tiny pathetic figure, Peter just keeps running. We return to Damien, and as we do, huge, terrible words fill the screen. From the eternal sea he rises, (laughs) creating armies on either shore, turning man against his brother until man exists no more. The time of the beast has come. The end. Fuck you, Gabe. Fucking hell. (laughs) Fucking hell, man. I I thought when Rob came into it, I was like, maybe he'll be Damien. And I'm like, and then the whole... I got misdirected. Good. <laughs> good. Fuck, I hate everybody. <laughs> you should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Can I guess the influence film? Yeah. The Mummy. Yes. Yeah. 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 It was, I was watching The Mummy on the plane. 
But half a tour, I was like, fuck, it would be great. An Omen film set at a dig. Yeah. Because instead of just being like, oh, the kid, is he the Antichrist? Is he not the Antichrist? We've seen it all before. Why yeah. don't we come at it from a different angle? Where it's sort of at first, it's like, oh, Damien's not there. Then it's like, wait, is Damien there? Wait, is our main character Damien? Wait. And then you suddenly realize that the main character is literally a scapegoat there to misdirect everybody so that Damien has his clear path and detracts from all the rumors. So in my head, even though I treat it like a total reboot, it could in theory be set between Omen 2 and 3. So I think in the Omen 3 from memory, Damien Thorne is the chief of staff for the ambassador and then becomes the ambassador kills himself and Damien takes his job or maybe he's not chief of staff, but this is a few years earlier, so he could move up. But- but yeah, so the ambassador to the court of St. James, I think it was, was Robert Thorne's position in the first film. Yep. And then Damien has that position in the third film. And then that's like his way to move up to the presidency. It, yeah, but it just it works perfectly, I think, as a reboot as well. But even, but even if you just erase two and three, it still works as a sequel yeah. to 76 and 2006. Yeah. Not 2006, because then Damien would be 10. Yeah. But you quite like those second and third films. I right? really like them. Well, that's so kind of why keep, I didn't yeah. eradicate them, because I, I don't know. I mean- We've but you, you could this. still eradicate them. You could, yeah. yeah. I mean, it could it, be a total it, reboot. It, 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 you, can, you can have your cake and eat it too in this. Well, the thing about a film or like this- Or you can leave the cake alone. Yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a reboot, it's the kind of film where you watch and you think, okay, well, like, it doesn't, it doesn't- You can still have the originals. It doesn't fuck with them. It pays homage to them. Yeah. But at the same time, you can watch it having not seen the original. You can watch it having only seen the original. You can watch it having only seen the remake. As long as you kind of have a rough idea of what the omen is, then this film- has you covered? I mean, the only the only thing you could do is if you wanted more emotional range from a character, you could cast Finn Jones as either of them. <laughs> oh, good call. <laughs> Redcliffe's no, a good choice because 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 he looks a little bit like, and he could look like yeah, looks like an kid. omen kid. He could yeah. be yeah. grown up. Yeah, probably the worst thing you could say about a person's appearance. Oh yeah, you look, look like, like an omen, like kid. An omen kid. Um, yeah, no, that's uh, it's pretty that's pretty good. So I yeah, I, I guess that's is kind the, of is the original it, composer still alive? Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. I think he might have just died recently. Ah, I imagine couldn't if be you wrong. got him doing the fucking Well, music. I kind of had the idea that I um I wanted to include as much of his music as possible, like the opening scene. I'll show you the tracks after this. Um yeah. I wanted to include those tracks because they're just so cool. Yeah. Like they're they're just so haunting and creepy and cool. And I mean they've always like in fact the omen soundtrack's often like a go-to of mine when I'm writing like really epic dark yeah. scenes. <laughs> you're because it's you're just, a horror buff. Yeah, you've seen yeah. all all the all the horror franchises basically. Is is the omen soundtrack Quite iconic. The Omen soundtrack's extremely iconic. Yeah. And it's yeah. Pro- like, for my money, I think it's probably the best horror soundtrack of all time. Yeah. Like, I, I, I really can't did, think I of really one did myself a disservice just to fuck you over. Still worth it. Yeah, you really did. No, it wasn't worth it. Like, I mean, <laughs> ne- coming out the other side of that, from which the betrayal is still fresh, but you really, like, the. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you get much out of the 76 one now because. No, I'll probably go back and rewatch it just because I watched the plate glass death and it was the fucking best. Or just watch Omen. Or Omen 2 and 3, you'll get a lot out of as well. I think it's the um, best. It's probably the best death I've ever, death seen. I've ever seen. It's pretty iconic. It's, it's fucking so good. <laughs> like it's it's up there with like an Elm Street death. Yeah. In terms of its just yeah. level of absurdity. Would with you be violence? Would you be trying to sort of hit at that with a lot of these deaths? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, because one thing about the Omen franchise is that it's kind of got that same. I mean, I don't know. Again, it's not really what I come to it for, but it's got the same thing as like the Final Destination and Saw films, where it's like, oh, what creep, what crazy deaths are we going to get this time? Because yeah. obviously, they're they deaths, are very Final Destination. They are very Final Destination. It's it's definitely a big thing with the Omen films, is like the kind of crazy, ridiculous Rube Gold, Goldberg style 
yeah. set of events that lead to strange coincidental deaths. And yeah. that's and often that are extremely gory. Yeah. Like there's one in the second one where I think like an elevator cable comes down and cuts an elevator in half and slices it's someone just, in half yeah, and stuff like fu- that. That's fucked. Or um or a kid who drowns under ice, like a kid who doesn't like Damien. Oh, he can't get up. Oh, wait, no, it's the... not a kid. It's like I don't remember. It's somebody at like one of the birthday parties in the second film who like falls on the ice and then like this that bit of ice he's on like flips and he gets trapped oh, under it. Oh shit! And they can't get him out. And just things like that. That is it's... my worst fucking. It's, I'm so glad I don't live in the snow. How fucked is the death scene of the nanny? Uh, like oh, hanging herself oh, at the kids' party Damien, at the start. Yeah. it's all for you. Oh, I was fucked. Oh, oh, I love it. Can I say, it's still fucked in the remake too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just creepy as shit. I love the setting of this one though because you kind of get like, because the mummy films, I mean, maybe not so much the Tom Cruise one, but. What just, are you talking about? Just, great just that general setting though is quite scary. Yeah. And then so you're mixing like the best of the mummy and the omen into like. Oh, well, also, there, moment, are, the many, there are the moments many. in, like, the whole thing with the fresco is something I sort of borrowed from Omen 2, because, like, the opening scene of Omen 2 is um, Carl Bugenhagen, who's the one who tells, basically gives Robert Thorne the evidence he needs that Damien is the Antichrist, yeah. the, the, who is Michael Gammon. Michael in Gammon the, in the remake, yeah. yeah. The opening scene of the second one is him going to a friend of his being like, okay, Robert Thorne's just died. We need to, like, find evidence. And they basically find this wall, this wall, like, hidden in somewhere in Jerusalem that, like, depicts Damien's face. And then that wall gets covered up. And then the rest of the film, that wall is kind of like a Chekhov's gun that hangs over the film because it shows okay, yep. teenage Damien's face. Yep. And so, like, Bugenhagen and them die when that collapses in on them and everything. So there is that whole thing in the original Omen films, not so much the third one. Oh, the third has a bit of it with... There's, like, this... third one has this whole subplot about this elite team of priests, all of whom are given one of the daggers of Megiddo, and they all just fuck up trying to kill Damien Thorne. Mm. Like, they all just die in shit ways because, yeah. like, one of them, like, Damien Thorne has a TV interview in one scene and, like, he tries to swing in on a rope and, like, spear <laughs> Damien and then he ends up getting burnt alive and, like, fried that's by fucking... the But isn't that TV the whole thing is, that's a dumb, that's dumb because it clearly states in the first film he has to be stabbed with all by seven. By all seven, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Look. Do you know what I will say? And I don't know if it's the same. That beat in the in the original when just he's bit, he does the he says the Lord's prayer and then he goes to bring the knife down and just before he does it, Damien flips back to being a kid and he's like, "Don't do it, Daddy!" And he hesitates. Yeah, it's yeah. And, and you're like, "Oh, jeez!" I remember in the original as well. Cops, yeah, I remember thinking like, "Just knock him out before you try and kill him." But th- that like watching that scene is really disturbing. Oh yeah, yeah, well. yeah, yeah. It's really fucked. I think he's thrashing and going yeah. nuts the whole way. There Gregory and- Peck's performance in the original is actually really good. I really th- like. I, I liked it as well. Yeah, for a horror film, like he really, really gives his all, and like it's quite a it's quite a moving character arc. It's a man yeah. who's like a very dignified, straightforward, dignitary. But he even does a whole bit where who- the where the journalist guy uh, Jennings tells him you have to do this, and he's like, I can't do that to it to my boy. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a uh, there's a the line something about giving the opportunity to choose between like right and good and evil and every man deserves the opportunity to do that and I'm not going to take that away from them even if it is my son and he throws the daggers away and Jennings like oh, I'll fucking do it yeah and then loses his head yeah and then there's the whole bit like before that when um or is it Jennings when when he when he finds out Kathy's been killed and he's just lying in bed and I, I remember like just the look on Gregory Peck's face where he's lying there and he's just like yeah, and he's like tearing up yeah and, and he's he just recites like, the thing Kathy's dead. I want Damien to be dead too. Yeah, it's, and it's just like, it's so cold and yeah. so just... But I, I really, it, like the beauty of the film, it balances the emotional stuff with Kathy as much as the horror. And like, yeah, I, yeah. Like, I was really well, there's surprised that, there's going... There's a whole in- bit when it's like, when um, he gets told that that she'll get pregnant again and Damien will stop the pregnancy. Yeah. And he's kind of like, well, that's fucking dumb. And then it happens and you just see the process of him understanding that and being like, oh no, I'm dealing with... the. My son is probably a devil boy. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't come into it expecting there to be that much heart in it. Like, it's got a lot of heart. There's quite a lot, yeah. yeah. I just expected, like, a 
a seventies horror film. But the I good guess, thing about it was, it was really, I, I really enjoyed it. I got heart, but I got budget heart. Yeah. <laughs> I got Liv Schreiber, <laughs> yeah. Julia Stiles heart, and which is Not which is an recap. odd pairing. They have no real, like I don't, I don't see Julia Stiles and go, yeah, yeah. Like Lee Schreiber is good as he works as a kind of Robert Thorne type character because he can play put upon and stress pretty yeah. well. He's no Gregory Peck though. Or oh, he's not Gregory Peck. Few are. Mm. But yeah, no, I think I think the Omen, like as an like the original film, it doesn't get the same love as like The Exorcist, as you know, a real classic of the genre. But I kind of I just think it's a very it's not trash. It's very well made. It's a classly made film. And like I don't know if it was I was reading about it this morning. I don't know if it was Jerry Goldsmith or somebody who like came to it. And oh no no it was um William Holden who plays Richard Thorne Thorn the second film was originally approached for Robert Thorne as was Roy Scheider from Jaws oh, cool. Chief oh, wow. Roy from Jaws yeah. and um apparently William Holden said no I don't want to be in a film about the devil I think it's going to be trash I think it's going to be exploitative and then he saw the first film when they invited him to do the second one he said yeah okay I guess I will cool. because I was really impressed by the first film and it then actually he wasn't being in one that was more trash and exploitative yes than the it first. was um, <laughs> but also more fun so but yeah like I suppose it's like anything you know the first one can be often can surprise you with how classy it is before it kind of goes like the third the third one by the time of the third one it is trash it's yeah. fun trash but it's trash yeah. it's anal sex yes and then but anal baby. babies by the fourth one yeah can I say that's probably why you weren't expecting a decent film yeah because because I, its legacy has been tarnished by multiple sequels reboots and novelizations well yeah the legacy of it seemed a bit trashy to me so that's what I expected and what I got was a really competent film that uh, it's actually just a really good film yeah 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 I, I, like, I actually prefer The Omen to The Exorcist. Uh, I mean, I don't know. The Exorcist is definitely a better film. I haven't like, seen it. Too I, scary. It's extremely well made. The Omen, I actually think The Omen's scarier than The Exorcist. Really? Yeah. Maybe I'll watch the it. The Exorcist then. is a lot more character driven. And like, Sean, very- Sean, you're going to fucking hate it. There's literally a bit in The Exorcist where you see the demon's face for like a split second. <sighs> you want to cut yourself. Don't do it to yourself. It's really good, though. It is good. It's not jump scary, though, is it? Oh. No. No, not really. <laughs> no, not, not really. <laughs> Some. I can't trust you, Tom. What do you mean? I don't know. I, I watched can't. the wrong omen. Yeah. So. <laughs> the Exorcist trust kind of gone. just has that, like, that kind of Jaws, Godfather, sort of just 70s quality filmmaking yeah, feel okay. to it, where, yeah. you know, all the characters are really well written. Everything's just really well put together. Everything's just very well crafted. It's just it's just an excellent, excellent movie. Mm. But yeah. I'll um, watch it. Nothing. Watch it. Watch it. Yeah. We'll do a maintenance on it at some point. Of, on the franchise, not the yep. original. And on that note, I've been Gabe. I've been Handsome Tom. I've been Carney. And if you guys have any thoughts on the Omen films or franchise, or funnily enough, The Exorcist, which is what we end up talking about, email us in at sanspantsradio at g. Wait, no, movie maintenance at sanspantsradio.com. Well done. Or on Twitter at mmsanspants, or individually, I'm at Gobergmoser. I'm at Awkward Treed. I'm at Sidekick of Dowie. And we'll see you guys next time. Cheers. They called me the devil's son. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support the show, why not become a member at sanspantsplus.com and get early access to our shows, a bunch of exclusive content, and much, much more. That's sanspantsplus.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.